I'm going to only read the first 23 verses. It says in chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich, man's ha- ha- the rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except One little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup, and it lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb Because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if it had been too little, I would have given you Much more, why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and you've killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you've despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord. Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before Israel, all Israel, before the son. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do some harm. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he went 
into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. You've all heard the expression and you know that it's true. The way of the transgressor is hard. People will often start off life and love and ministry and friendship and fellowship with the Lord and things go good. You're experiencing joy and peace and then sin interrupts your life. For the Christian, they can slip silently into sin or they can fall suddenly into sin. And when you slip silently or fall suddenly, there is an instant erosion. Of joy and peace. So much so that you can almost be emptied out of joy and peace. David has sinned. And David has had plenty of time to consider what the weight of guilt and conviction has done. It's begun to take its toll on the surface of his soul. Probably more than a year has gone by. And in this chapter... Conviction will become confrontation and confrontation will lead to confession and, con- and conviction and confrontation and confession will lead to cleansing. But make no mistake about it. There will also be consequences. David is forced to deal with his sin. And as David is forced to deal with a sin, again, our challenge isn't simply to consider David's sin, but to consider our own. And the passage is going to give us clues and principles in our life of what we can do and what love and what grace and what mercy is available for the sinner who repents. That there is a wealth of forgiveness that's available from the Lord and from our Savior. And like I said, many months have gone by since David ordered Uriah's death. And he knew, he knew, he knew in his heart what he had done. And apparently, few others were aware. It would seem from reading chapter 11 and and chapter 12 that only a handful of people were aware of David's transgression, including some some trusted servants who went to fetch Bathsheba, Joab who received Uriah's death warrant on the battlefield, and clearly, who else knew we have little knowledge? But clearly the Lord knew. And in the months that followed, we know that David thought about his sin. And do you know how we know that he thought about his sin? Because he talks about it in Psalm chapter 32. As a matter of fact, you might jot that down and read it when you have time. David writes, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all day long, it says in Psalm 32. Since the David 
since David refused to bring his sin and to bring these circumstances to the Lord, the way that I would put it is this way. Because David refused to go to the Lord about this issue in his heart, he couldn't go for any other issue. There was silence and a wall. Because that's what wickedness and sin and rebellion will do. It will establish a wall that separates you from your Lord. We also know that David... In his private hell, wrote in Psalm 32, 4, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. David Jeremiah writes, quote, The king could command his subjects, but he had no power to command his conscience. The freshness of his life was gone. It was replaced with bitterness and sorrow. The conscience of a righteous man badgers him when he falls into sin and it fills him with disgust, breaking his communion with God, unquote. And that is absolutely true. The unrighteous man could care less about his sin or what others think. You know, it's difficult to confront sin. David's sin wasn't just a momentary lapse of judgment. It wasn't just passion gone astray. His lapse of judgment is clear. His passion gone astray is clear. But the premeditated murder of Uriah was calculated. It was planned. And it was executed. Jesus warned his disciples in Luke chapter 17, verse 3. He said, I want to warn you. He said, take heed to yourself. And whenever Jesus says, attention please, I need to warn you. That's when your ears should perk up and your heart should open. Because what Jesus is going to say is important. He says in Luke 17, 3, I want to warn you, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. The word rebuke in Luke 17, 3 means to cautiously confront with a view that you might be wrong. That's what it means. People in authority, people in ministry are Let's just be honest. They're difficult to confront, are they? People who are in authority or who are in ministry, um, clearly think about it for a moment. David is king. David is a man who's been used by God. There are 62 chapters in the Old Testament devoted to his life. There's no less than 59 references to David in the New Testament. No one argues or diminishes the things that he has done. Clearly, he has been used by God, but clearly he's committed horrible sins. Adultery, murder, and rather than face his sins, he tries to cover them up. And then for at least a year, he tried to hide his sin. He tried to, to cover up his hypocrisy and deceit. And some people would even go so far as to say, He's certainly not acting like a saved person. I doubt if this person's even saved. That often happens when people fall into wickedness and they go, I thought, didn't you used to go to church? Didn't you, 
used to go to Bible study, you, you know, how, how could it be possible that a person like this could find themselves in a circumstance like this? He tries to hide, but God knows, and God cares, and God understands the consequences of sin. And you see, that's the challenge for the sinner. The challenge for the sinner is, I think I dodged a bullet. I think I've gotten away with it. But make no mistake about it. That voice whispering in your ear that you've dodged a bullet and you think you've gotten away with it, it's a lie. For the person who whispers in their own heart, I can sin and get away with it. It's a lie from hell. The last sentence in the last chapter says it all. Remember at the end of chapter 11 in verse 27? But when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But look at the last sentence. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. All of the right things that David had done wasn't enough to make this wrong thing go away. God, by the way, may not settle the account at the end of the day. And he may not settle your account at the end of today. And he may not settle your account at the end of the week. And he may not settle your account at the end of the month or even at the end of this year or even a decade from now. But make no mistake about it. There will come a day of reckoning. Someone once said that God's wheels grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. And David was going to experience a confrontation. I want you to understand part of the point that is being made in this chapter because you may not realize it right at this point, but it has a necessary lesson for you. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. God was designing a strategy to bring David to his knees. He was designing a strategy that would be appropriate for David to hear from God, confess his sin, and turn from his sin, and turn to the Lord. And God will design a strategy just right for you to bring you to a place of humility and decision. Now I want you to look at even the opening verse. Look what it says in verse 1 and read it for yourself. Then God sent Nathan... That one line, then the Lord sent Nathan. You'll notice that the Lord didn't send an army. David is pretty, he's in trouble. I guess I need to send him an army to bring him to his knees. I guess I need a disease to bring him to his knees. I guess I need a catastrophe to bring him to his knees. I guess I need this or I need that. No, the Lord sent Nathan. And look what else The Lord does. Nathan doesn't rebuke or confront David based on ill will or a funny feeling or a premonition. There isn't some 
fuzzy feeling going on inside of Nathan's heart. It is the Lord who sends Nathan. And Nathan is going to need courage from the Lord to confront David because in the Middle East, and particularly at that time, when anyone confronted a despot, and let me tell you what a despot is, it is a person who has absolute power and authority over the citizens. Nathan ran the risk of being killed on the spot. Nathan is going to need courage from the Lord to confront David. And we all need friends. We need people who love us. And we need people who have the courage to confront us in our sin. And God clearly sent David, a man of great integrity, who is willing to tell David the truth. But I want you to note something else. The Lord not only sends Nathan, but he sends Nathan at exactly the right time. And the reason why this becomes important, remember what I've already told you. A whole year probably has gone by since this thing has happened and the Lord knows the right time and the right person to send. And you might be seeing someone and you go, Lord, how come you're not dealing with this person now? Can't you see what's going on in their marriage? Can't you see what's going on in their life? Can't you see what's going on in that church? Can't you see what's going on? Can't you do something about it? And the Lord goes, I am going to do something about it. But I'm going, to do about, I'm going to do something about it at exactly the right time. God will sometimes send servants to confront us in our sinful circumstance. But the problem that we face as Christians is not to become sin-sniffing canine Christian assault team where we go, I smell fee-fi-fo-fum. I smell the sin of... Everyone. <laughs> That's really not helpful. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 16, it says, If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he, small h, will ask, and he, big h, the Lord, will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say you should pray about that. The biblical implication seems to be you are vexed, you are discouraged, you are upset because of what you see someone doing. Pray. Begin to pray. Begin to pray. You know, it's one thing for me to confront you, but it's another thing for the Lord to confront you. It's one thing for me to say something, but it's another thing for the Lord himself to whisper in the quiet recesses of your heart, I need to bring something to your attention. God wisely gave Nathan a parable to speak to David. I think that that's important too. He sends the right person and he sends the, the right person at the right time. But then he sends the right person at the right time to speak words in just the right way. You know, it's one thing to confront a person. It's another thing to say, hey, you know, what rhymes with well, and starts with an H and is where you're going unless things seriously change. Now the challenge is to figure out a way to say the right thing at the right time. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. But I want you to understand something. It was David's heart and conscience. It was churning. 
and in that churning conscience that was inside of David's heart, even through that sin and wickedness and rebellion and conviction, God was preparing for the confrontation. David wasn't just eating falafels and sipping goat's milk lattes with a little cinnamon in it when Nathan comes and confronts him. David has sleepless nights. One Bible writer says he could see his sin written across the walls. He saw it on the plate where he tried to choke down his meals. He saw it on the face of his counselors. He was a miserable husband. He was an irritable father. He was a poor leader. He was a songless composer. And that's when you know you're in trouble. It's when you wake up and you say, my sin is making me miserable. You go throughout the day, my sin is making me miserable. At noon, your sin is making you miserable. You go to bed at night and your sin is making you miserable. Can you imagine how much courage it took Nathan to tell David the truth? You see, David had been lying to himself for over a year. But no one else told David the truth. But the Bible is still true, isn't it? Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he or she will also reap. And I'm going to tell you what I think is the most effective tool. God will use your conscience. There's a reason why you have a mechanism inside of you that urges you and tells you to do what's right and do what's wrong. The problem, of course, is that for some people, they abuse their conscience so much that it can be seared and it can be broken. And when a person has a seared heart and a broken conscience that doesn't work right, then you know you're in big trouble. My very first car was a 1968 Toyota Corolla. And it had one of those little red lights that come on. My, my father called them an idiot's light. He goes, you see that red light? It's an idiot light. I go, Dad, why do you call it an idiot's light? Because once the light comes on, it's too late. You've already burnt the engine. And for many people, that's what their conscience is. It's an idiot light that once it comes on and it says, you've done something really wrong, you go, uh-oh. And look what it says in verse 4 after he says, the parable, the rich man had exceedingly many flocks, herds, you know the story, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he had bought and nourished. And then in verse 4 it says, And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfarer man who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now look what it says in verse 5. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. Now imagine he's hearing this story and he has no idea that it's a story about him. That's the bittersweet thing about parables. They conceal and they reveal David's heart burns with anger, but his own words will condemn him. That person deserves to die. 
Now, it's really interesting to me. He goes, death, oh, but by the way, he's going to have to fourfold uh, replace the lamb. You know, you'd think you'd start with fourfold replacement of the lamb, then we kill him. Because dead people, can they pay things back? Not really. When confrontation occurs, it's God's timing. The way is prepared. And that's the idea. Get the picture. David stuck his head in the noose, and Nathan pulled the string. (laughs) Oh, look, my head is right there in the noose. And then Nathan goes, you are that man. Look what it says. Then Nathan said to David, you're the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if it had been too little, I would have given you more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. It's his way of saying, from, the, from God's perspective, it's as if you picked up the sword and and killed him yourself. Now there's only a few words spoken, but how effective they are. One Bible writer says, quote, David crumbled in humility. And I think a fresh gush of relief came over his life, unquote. And I thought that that was interesting because that's what real confrontation will do. Instead of continuing to hide your sin, there's a sense of relief. That it's known and that it can be dealt with. (laughs) Chuck Swindoll writes, quote, I'm absolutely convinced, though the narrative doesn't say it, that David's jaw dropped open. He blinked and stared at Nathan at his own sins silently and then vividly passed in review. He didn't know that anyone knew what he had done. Certainly he never experienced or expected anyone, especially a trusted prophet, ever to confront him about it. Yet Nathan was the very best person to do it. Why? I'm going to ask you a hard question. Who has the right to tell you? Your wife? Your husband? Your children, your pastor, the Bible. Who are you willing to hear from concerning the truth that's in your heart? Who is it that you will open up your heart and you will open up your ears and you are willing to say, I can receive what this person's saying? In Proverbs 27, 6, it says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Proverbs 27, 6 literally reads in the Hebrew this way, Trustworthy are the bruises caused by the wounding of someone who loves you. It's the kind of stripes that you get when your dad says, you know I'm going to have to discipline you. And I'm not going to fool with you. 
You know, a lot of people will say, this will hurt me a lot more than it hurts you. It's not true. This is going to hurt you a lot. You're the one who's going to be in pain because of this. One pastor was talking about school shootings in Jonesboro. During that awful school shooting spree, the pastor said, it's child abuse not to discipline your children. You see, there comes a point in every person's life where they wrongfully think that I can do whatever I want and I can get away with whatever I want to do. We are not doing our children and we're certainly not doing each other a favor if we leave each other with the, with the impression that we are free to sin against one another without impunity. The one who loves you is willing to bruise you. Lingering wounds inflicted are faithful and trustworthy. Here's the idea. A person who loves you is willing to disarm you. So that you will be like putty. Here's the idea. David sins in secret for a little while, but now his sin is exposed for the whole world to see. And private sins can be dealt with privately, and public sins must be dealt with publicly. Before David has a chance to open his mouth. When Nathan says, you're the man, and before he even has a chance to open his mouth, the prophet speaks the judgment of God, and Nathan is just the mouthpiece. David has despised God, and now God is going to bring grief on his household. And what a horrible prediction. You read the prediction, the sword, the sword is not going to leave your house. Thus says the Lord, behold, I'm going to raise up adversity against your own house. I'm going to take your wives before your eyes. I'm going to give them to your neighbor. He's going to lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. You did it secretly. I'm going to do it openly. He said in the parable, this guy is going to restore fourfold. And David will restore fourfold. The child is going to die. His own son is going to sexually assault his own daughter. His other son is going to murder the son as a result of the sexual assault. His own son is going to try and overthrow the kingdom. And as he overthrows the kingdom and as David is leaving Jerusalem, the son is going to take his wives on the top of the mountain in an open pavilion and have sexual relations with his wife in front of God and everybody. And you would think that the humiliation is unbearable. God is not mocked. What a person sows, that also they will reap. If you think that sin doesn't have consequences, you are absolutely wrong. In the next few chapters, as we read them, you will see obsession and rape and revenge and murder and anger out of control. And so the next time you start to think, well, David committed a sin and God forgave him. 
If I commit a sin, then God will forgive me. And I've got to tell you something. It is true. God will forgive you. But when you underestimate the consequences of your rebellion, you're making a serious mistake. And look at verse 13. So David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. I'm sure you could have heard a pin drop. I'm sure that when Nathan said, you're the man, and he pronounced the judgment, there is silence. You hear nothing. There's, you can't hear breathing. You can't hear anything. You hear nothing. And there's a raging voice inside of David's heart. And inside of that raging voice, you can hear his conscience screaming, every word is true. Every single word is true. It's all true. Every single word is true. And he stares into the eyes of the prophet. And he says, the only thing that you can say, when you're willing to give up the charade, when you're willing to abandon the lies, when you're willing to let go of the hypocrisy, when you can't stand the deceit for even one more moment, You know, we've trivialized it. I've sinned. When Jimmy Swaggart was exposed in that horrible scandal decades ago, he gets on national TV and he goes, I have sinned. And then Johnny Carson gets on the late show and says, I have sinned. And Jay Leno starts mocking and all Saturday Night Live, every comedian and every pundit and every weird and wicked mocking person that you can imagine begins to say, oh, well, this is, the, this is what you can do if you're caught. You can just say, I have sinned. And you can cry some tears and everything is going to be fine. Let me help you understand something. People have trivialized the expression. But there's nothing trivial about admitting your sin. There's nothing trivial about coming to grips with the wickedness inside of your own heart. Spurgeon said that a man's repentance should be at least as notorious as his sin. You know, it's one thing for your wife to find you in a sexual infidelity. It's another thing for every person on every channel, in every country, in the world, talking about your infidelity. You're making a serious mistake if you think that Tiger Woods has gotten away with it. Or that Jesse James and his breakup with Sandra Bullock has gotten away with it. For whatever reason, we as human beings are like unbelievably preoccupied with other people's tragedy. That somehow their tragedy will make our tragedy go away. Listen to David's confession. He wrote it out in Psalm 32. In verse 12, he writes out his confession. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now listen to his confession in verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of sin. 
summer, Selah. You may not understand what that means. I rarely quote the Living Bible, but it captures the intention of the passage. Listen carefully. It says, There was a time when I wouldn't admit what a sinner I was, but my dishonesty made me miserable and it filled my days with frustration. All day and all night your hand was upon me. My strength evaporated like water on a sunny day until I finally admitted all my sins to you and I stopped trying to hide them. That's what that means. And by the way, that is confession. Confession is, I finally, I finally admitted all my sins. And I stopped trying to hide them. We live in a world where that's the norm. I need to figure out a way that she'll never find out. I need to find a way that he'll never find out. I need to find a way. Because if they find out, he could leave me. She could leave me. I could lose my job. The children will never trust me. You see, you in your heart will find all kinds of reasons. But guess what? When David wrote Psalm 51 over this whole affair, he had lost his joy. He was unstable. He felt inferior and insecure. He wrote, created me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit with me, within me. Sin is painful. The wages are death. And a little bit later, not today, but later, next week, we're going to look closely at verse 51. Because in order for you to understand this journey, I'm going to have to take you through the private emotional hell that he went through. You want to know why? Not to make life burdensome and miserable for you, but so that you can know that there is a journey that you can take out of guilt and into forgiveness. Out of wickedness into joy. Where your peace and joy isn't the exception. It's the rule in your life. Often Christians who are caught in sin. Who are consumed by sin will say. You know I'm fine. Leave me alone. Really I'm okay. I feel free. I'm having fun. But in the core of their being. They are hollow and empty and joyless and pointless. And I believe every true Christian who has ever elected to disobey God and turn to sin, won't deny the reality of the emptiness that it caused in their life. Alexander White writes these words about the courage and skill and faithfulness of Nathan the prophet. He says, quote, Preaching is magnificent work if only we could get preachers like Nathan. If our preachers had only something of Nathan's courage, skill, serpent-like wisdom, evangelical instancy, we ministers must far more study Nathan's method, especially when we are sent to preach awakening sermons. And that's the point of this passage. It isn't simply to just discuss the historical implications of David's sin. It's to give you a way to confront your sin and to know that there is such a thing as 
God's grace. And, and if God uses you to send the message, if God decides to use you to send the message, you need to do it with skill and you need to do it with humility and you need to do it in such a way that God is glorified and that Jesus is lifted up and that Christ is exalted and that grace and mercy is given. And if you can't do it with skill and if you can't do it with love and if you can't do it with humility and if you can't do it with restoration, don't do it. And it could very well be that if God has called you to do it, there's a reason why. Because people in that emptiness, people in that darkness, and people in that wickedness need hope. That's exactly the right reason. They want forgiveness. They want restoration. And so you need to confront the right way at the right time. You need to help the person squarely face their sin. You need to call it what it is. You don't try to explain it away. There's a reason why the Bible says you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of meekness knowing that you yourself are subject to the very same temptation. We speak the truth in love. And so when David says, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan immediately, look at how immediate it is. And Nathan said to David, well, you know what? We're going to have to put you in a sexual rehab. Because clearly, dude, think about it. You have issues. Like major issues. You think you can just kill someone, commit adultery, say, I have sinned, and that's it? Some of you at this very moment are upset that the Bible offers David such immediate grace, such immediate mercy. Remember what I just said to you? There's going to be huge consequences. There's going to be huge consequences if David had the ability to supernaturally show up and walk into this pulpit and say, David, here, here's your choices. We kill you right now. Right now we kill you. But the baby lives. Your children live. Your son does not sexually assault your daughter. Your other son doesn't murder your son. Your other son doesn't kick you off the throne. Tens of thousands of people are locked into a power grab. It, okay, so here's your choices. You die or this happens. What do you suppose David would say? Please kill me now. Would that it was that simple for David. And would that it was that simple for you. Don't miss the important point. As soon as David admitted his sin, I, you, here's the point that you need to get and you need to underline and it needs to be burned into a part of your memory of this particular passage. The moment, the moment, the moment David admitted his sin, the wheels of restoration begin to turn. 
And this becomes important for you. And it becomes important to everyone you know and everyone you love. The moment that they begin to confess their sin, the wheels of restoration begin to turn. Because think about what's going on. The confrontation leads to confession. And the confession leads to cleansing. See, I I know what your first thought is. Your first thought is, the moment I confess, I'm toast. No, the moment you confess, you set in motion the wheels of cleansing. That's the idea. God would have been perfectly reasonable to have said to David, oh, by the way, I'm going to kill you. And the kingdom is going to be torn from you. And uh, this whole idea about you being the king, well, that's pretty much over with. No, you can't be the king. No, you can't continue in ministry. No, you can't be the shepherd. No, we're, we're shutting off your radio program. We're turning off your TV program. Your internet ministry is gone. We're shutting you down. Your pulpit, your throne is gone. You are done. But God didn't. God gave him a promise of grace. Again, I know what some of you are thinking. He doesn't deserve grace. I know. The very definition of grace, is it something that you deserve? Grace ceases to be grace once it's deserving. (laughs) When the prophet says, You will not die. In the next few chapters, in the next few chapters, as you walk with David on this journey that is going to lead from cleansing to restoration, you can hear the voices whisper, I'll bet you wish you were dead now. I bet you wish you were dead now. And in verse 14 it says, However, because by this deed... You have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also who is born to you shall surely die. And then Nathan departed to his house. Conviction. Confrontation. Confession. Cleansing. Consequences. The consequences starting to wake up. You know, we don't have to go far in the Bible to find men and women who have failed and who have sinned miserably. Lot split company with Abraham. He pitched his tent near Sodom. It cost him his testimony. It cost him his family. It cost him his character. For Lot, the pleasure of moving to Sodom was more important than any sense of guilt he may have felt in leaving his uncle Abraham in the pasture lands. There's a price for selfishness. There's a price for self-gratification. There's a price for drug addiction. There's a price for alcoholism. There is a price that the thief pays. There's a price that the adulterer pays. There's a price that the politician, well let's just say the unprincipled politician pays. It's not a sin in and of itself to be a politician. For now. Well, what about the deliverance part and what about the hope part? Isn't this a contradiction? 
You know, in the one mouth, you're talking about grace, and with the other mouth, you're talking about consequences. Which is it? Is it grace or is it consequences? What do you suppose the answer is? It is both. And the two aren't mutually exclusive. There is grace. And sinners do pay a price. Peter refers to Lot as a righteous man rescued by God. In 2 Peter 2.7 it says, Distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for the righteous man living among them day by day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Ever since I've read that I go, what? What? What What are you saying? This guy was weird and wicked and compromised. This is the guy who brought new meaning to no forks in the family tree. But despite his compromises, Lot still had an active conscience. He remembered Abraham's devotion. Lot had not made a complete break with righteousness, even when he went to Sodom, and even when he stayed there. And when you as a Christian make your little journey into the world and you do the little things that you do, there's something inside of you. There's something inside of you that says, this is wrong, this is wrong, I can't do this, I can't continue to live this way, this is wrong, this is wrong, I can't do this, I can't continue to live this way. The headlines are filled with people who seem to want all that life can offer and then they want more. The truth? The truth is, when you least expect it, You're going to play the role of one of two people. You are going to play the role of the person being confronted. (laughs) Or you're going to play the role of the person who does the confronting. My advice to you, tell the truth. Make sure you have your facts straight. Make sure you have the right timing. Make sure that you say not only the right thing at the right time, but you say it the right way. Be wise with your words. Understand that it's going to take courage to face your fears and to allow the consequences of obedience to run its course in your life. Nathan was sent by God. You know why that's an important thing for you? Because God was the source of Nathan's courage. And here's the idea. When the Lord sends you, and when the Lord gives you the right words to say, then you also have the complete confidence that the words are true because these are the words that God has given you. And it's okay for you to say what John writes in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Cleanse you from the consequences? No. But guess what? You can face the consequences if your heart is right with God. We're going to have to stop because we're going to have to stop in the middle of the study and I'm going to pray for you. And we're going to stop and the next time we meet, we're going to take a good, hard look at Psalm 51 
It's very, very important that you go on this journey with David. And the reason why? Because if you can learn, if you can learn, if you can learn from his mistakes, (laughs) then your life is going to be a whole lot better. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person. Lord, I pray that conviction will eventually lead to confrontation. That confrontation will lead to confession and and confession will lead to cleansing. Lord, for the person who has wandered into sin. For the person who has experienced an evaporation of joy and peace and they want so desperately to have it back. Lord, I pray that you would place your hand like you did on David, that you would press it against their heart. Lord, I pray that you would put the squeeze on just the right spot at just the right time and that, Lord, you will allow just the right thing to be said so that the person will come to that place where they will say, I can't stand it anymore. I can't continue to live in that relationship. I can't continue to pursue that friendship. I can't continue to go in that direction. I can't continue to walk away from God. I can't continue in disobedience and rebellion. It's not working. Lord, I pray that you would bring to their remembrance your love and your grace and your mercy. Your willingness, Lord, To say, I'm willing to take you back. I just need you to turn from the direction that you're going. And I need you to turn back to me. I need you to embrace me. I need you to know that I've made a provision for your sin. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. That Jesus died on the cross for each and every one of our sins. Including these ones. And that, Lord, you're willing to restore and renew friendship and relationship because of grace, because of mercy, and because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. And Lord, your willingness to take every wicked and evil thing that we've ever done and place it on the cross of Calvary. That we can walk in purity and humility and joy. Lord, we pray that the conviction and the confrontation and the confession would come to a place of real cleansing, that we would experience freedom and joy and the strength to be able to walk into the consequences knowing that, hey, you know what? I can do this because you love me and you're with me. In Jesus' name.